Welcome to If This Then That, a podcast from Berg School of Communication that's all about strategy. So, cool. we're here talking about ruthlessness. We are. So today we're going to focus on ruthlessness in strategy and we're going to look at it in a few different ways. We're going to look at it, uh, first of all, some definitions and then we'll look at uh, some examples as well as tips on how to get ruthlessness. And I think a good way to conclude is to wrap things up with some golden rules or some some takeaways about ruthlessness. So ruthlessness in strategy, I think, is a... Um uh, is a trait of some of the most respected, admired, and successful uh, brands and businesses that we know. And also, it's a phrase that I think is really, uh, it kind of like stands out when you consider some of the soft and fluffy language that is is often used in uh, marketing and marketing speak. Um, but when I think of ruthlessness, I don't know about you, Adam, but when I think about it in strategy and in marketing, I see it as um, almost like a really positive trait that allows um, uh, brands to focus on a direction um, and get to a destination. I mean, it's it means action. It means decisive kind of action. And it feels like it's it's focused in a direction and it's you know, to use a bad Anglo phrase, it's not afraid to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Right. And I, I like personally as a professional and as a consumer, I would love to see more ruthlessness in strategy. Uh, I think that like a lot of things, it's how you define it and how you interpret it. Right. So uh, I guess the ruthlessness part kind of indicates uh, at any costs, if you like, which may or may not be uh, desirable, <laughs> depending yeah. on what it is. Um, but I prefer to see it more as a, um, this is uh, who we are, what we believe, and how we are going to do it, if you like. Yeah, it does have certain overtones of kind of, you know, a take no prisoners approach. Do you think that like certain organizations, how do you think certain organizations end up there? Do you think they end up in a place where ruthlessness is the right strategy from the beginning? Are they born ruthless or do they become ruthless? Or how do you see that splitting out? Um, I think brands and businesses are born or made uh, ruthless. So uh, in our course, um, in the brand strategy course, um, uh, in one of the lessons, we look at the strategic intent uh, model. And that model is kind of like based around, you know, mission, vision, um, um, brand definition, brand model, all the way through to kind of goals and objectives. Um, And what I think is that brands and businesses that have a really clear and well-defined mission and vision um, are best suited to be able to um, be ruthless in their execution of it. The better that mission, the kind of more richer it is, the more kind of like future thinking and facing, and also the more challenging it is, the more it requires that kind of like uh, ruthless approach. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it, it goes down to, you know, and I think we might have mentioned it previous previously, but the the vibe that an organization begins with because of their founders and the context and their market and the all those kinds of elements. 
I mean, I think that permeates all the way through. I mean, it changes the temperature in their smallest office and their biggest office as they grow. So they become, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you ever go to a high school reunion, the the friends or the casual acquaintances you had as a teenager, you know, you meet them 10 or 20 years later and they're just more intense versions of themselves right, in some right. ways. You mean like Brad, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <Brad>. <laughs> There's always like yes. one guy or one girl, Jenny. Um, yeah. And she's just become true. more Jenny 15 years later. Yeah. And you, you find it a little bit surprising, but I think like brands follow that, that similar personality. Do you have any good examples or do you have any favorite examples or unusual examples of being born ruthless or beginning ruthless? Um... It's really hard because my favorite example is the example everyone knows, which is Nike. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. And I just actually just think it's the best example um, if we're talking about uh, almost like a positive ruthlessness in their kind of like strategic approach. Their mission and their vision is really clear. It's the same with Patagonia, which is another yeah. brand that we um, look at uh, in the course. Um, I tell you what, that there's one that we're playing with at the moment, and I don't know if I've mentioned it previously, but um, uh, there's a, a mobile brand called OnePlus. Yeah. And they have like a proposition, uh, which is around um, this phrase. Oh, yeah. It's called never settle. And that's not their mission, their vision. Their mission, their vision is quite different, but they're, they're kind of like public articulation of those things is this whole thing around never settling, right? Um, and what that means for their consumers and what they mean, that means for a business is like always strive for the best experience. Um, and when you've reached it, never settle, you know, always look for more. Um, yeah. And they do it in a way which doesn't feel really kind of awfully capitalistic, if you like. It's not kind of like a, um, you know, buy more, 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 new, new, new. It's more about improvement. Um, yeah. Um, but in the same way, they're quite ruthless in their um, packaging of this kind of like proposition, this approach. For me, OnePlus is such a great example of a challenger brand. And I, th I feel like it's a brand that can only really be born when you've got really big dominant players on your left and your right. So on your left, you've got Apple and on your right, you've got Samsung. I guess this is five or five or six or seven years ago when they started, but they've definitely got that to, to bounce off. And it feels like it's a, it feels like their decisions are, are made in the context of what their opponents are doing in lots of ways. I think you um, touched on a good point um, around how, you know, brands and businesses or modern ones, I'd say, you know, whether they're startup or they're moving into that uh, scale up phase um, are different from, you know, some of the ones that, um, you know, we think are today, but they were maybe born 50, 60 years ago. And I think there is an inherent need for agility yeah. at the heart of like brands. 
these days, which means that, yes, you might be ruthless um, in your strategy and, and in your approach, but you recognize there's uh, the requirement to be a bit nimble, right? So, I mean, you use the phrase like, um, you know, uh, um, that you often use about it's hard to turn a big ship. Uh, someone I used to work with uh, who works at, um, oh, who leads um, uh, Wiley Kennedy now, Colleen DeCourcy, she used to often talk about speedboats versus big tankers. Right. And I think brands now today are uh, born today are more speedboats, basically, um, in nature, even if they turn into like huge monoliths, um, you know, Facebook style uh, uh, decades later, um, they just have this inherent Yes, we know what we're going for, but you know what? We realize there's different ways of doing it. Plus, we have like the sensibilities of what's going on in society and the world to actually consider as well. Yeah, and often if they're often if they're often if they look like the shape of a big ship, when you get up close, you realize it's just a whole lot of little speedboats. So they're they're smaller teams that are a little bit more nimble. Uh, and when they kind of what do, what do boats do drive uh, cruise when they cruise in formation mm-hmm. uh, you know they appear as one unit but they're really a lot of a lot of smaller teams you were talking about you know ruthless brands being opinionated and that fascinated me could you like uh, share a bit more about your thoughts around that so maybe it's good to start with a little anecdote. I used to work on Ford, the car company in Australia, which was big and established and was part of a duopoly from the from about the 1940s through the 50s, 60s. And then with a whole lot of Japanese and Korean cars coming in, it became a very busy marketplace. Whenever we would do research, the biggest problem is that uh, we were not we were neither loved nor hated. So we were just so the market and people just felt apathy or nothing towards us. And it's a whole lot easier if you're loved or hated to get attention and kind of update your comms. Whereas if you're going from like apathy, you're you're just not on people's radar. You're just not in their world. They just don't give a shit about you. Right. Like you're just, you're kind of dead, but you're dead in public, which is the worst way of, of being dead. <laughs> and I think that like, you know, opinionated brand, like we're moving into a world where consumers uh, have a bit more influence over the the social values and the running and the implications of what brands and services and products have on society and the world in a larger sense. So, like more skin in the game. Yeah, totally. I mean, and there's like there's more there's more chance to there's more feedback loops uh, to kind of to let brands and organisations know that they're very happy or very unhappy. So, I think that like. I think if you look at everything from a from T-Mobile in the US, who is really opinionated about certain topics and goes up against incumbents that are the equivalent of like Telia in Sweden or BT in the UK, they're just they're big and opinionated. They're like they're. I mean, Nike is a great example. They take Nike to me, and I'm like I haven't really studied Nike in any great length. I've never worked with them. I've only just been a slightly jealous outside of their communications. <laughs> it's good to be jealous about that stuff. But to me, it feels like they're really ruthless about the pursuit of excellence on a personal level. And that's where they use a whole lot of ambassadors from, you know, Serena Williams to Michael Jordan. But they're also really opinionated about the social issues off the tennis court, off the basketball court. And that, so they take a stand with Black Lives Matter. They 
are being forced to take more of an environmental stand because it's, you know, the, a headline about Nike factory conditions in Cambodia is such a juicy media option for jur- journalism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of when the real world cl- uh, clashes with the, the marketing. Yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's a, that's a whole lot of bad PR that's very costly and difficult to undo. But it, for me, Nike are a really good example of that. But I think, like, yes, Nike, Nike are ruthless, but I think they're conservatively calculated about their about their ruthlessness. So they're really happy to lose a a small right wing group that they probably that probably weren't buying sneakers anyway, so that they can double down on a more liberal audience, a more left-wing audience. I think they're super calculated. I think, I think you um, touch on a thing that is happening more and more and will happen more in the future, where you have businesses overtly saying, because we're ruthless about who we are, what we make and what our values are. If you're not into us, we don't want you. I completely agree. And I love the idea that you sack your customer. I think that is like, I think whether you're an agency or a brand, there is a small percentage of cancer that is giving you money in a way that you would be better off in the short, medium and long term to divest yourself of. I have a little uh, anecdote myself, actually, which is from an, and this is like an agency story. Um, I was talking to some friends the other day and they, they were at a pitch for, you know, a big uh, internationally known uh, car brand. People listening to this probably know what the pictures are like, right? So you get this piece of paper, this brief, you work on it for weeks. Um, uh, you're second guessing what this customer might want. Um, you're thinking of like the pitch theater, you're thinking of the strategy, you're thinking of the creative and so on. Um, so in short, you invest a lot in this business opportunity. They turned up to, uh, this pitch for this brand. Um, they gave their all as you do in these situations. Um, and, um, you know, room for, you can imagine boardroom table, room for the people looking at you expectantly, you guys, um, or your team do your thing. Um, and then you leave and you generally speaking, never know what the result's going to be. No, they're always very poker faced. It's very annoying. It's like talking to a robot. It's very disconcerting. And sometimes, you know, they're actually really friendly and interactive. And then you find out that they actually hated your work, basically. Which is even worse. <laughs> so you like never know. But the thing is, it's like, it's, you know, part of the, uh, part of the uh, business. So the, the, these guys, you know, call them a- Agency X. They're on their way back from the pitch and they bump into Agency Y. And Agency Y had been in that room um, a few hours before them because often you have these pitches one after the other yeah, on the yeah, same day, right. right? They're like job interviews for big pieces of business. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually it's maybe a little bit closer to like speed dating, like when oh, you're God. seeing one person straight after the other, right? And so it's you've got like that diuretic <laughs> comparison. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not that I have ever speed dated. So they bump into agency X, uh, sorry, they bump into agency Y and often you're at this same airport lounge and stuff like that. If it's, uh, if it's, yeah, one of those. um, agency Y called up the brand on their way back from the pitch and said, we don't want to work with you. Amazing. They said, we didn't like, we didn't like your team. We didn't like your vibe. Um, and regardless of what you think of our work, we don't want your multi-million euro account 
because we don't think we're going to, we don't think there's a good uh, synergy here. Um, And I think that's amazing. Yeah, I really do. I think it's like, I think we can all be suckers for the euro, the yen, the Deutschmark, the pound, the dollar, whatever. It's And it, it's just, you lose a lot when you take on bits of business that suck your soul and energy and time away. And you lose, you lose good people too. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, maybe now's not the time to, to do that. Um, <laughs> I, just before we move on, I would love if, do you have any examples of ruthlessness? And that's a long word that I think I struggle with. Do you have any examples of ruthlessness gone bad? Um, Ryanair. Ah, okay. That's interesting. Uh, I think it's a real interesting one because you have this um, company that um, everyone hates i don't know anyone who likes loves ryanair they love to hate them in fact in fact it's like everyone has a ryanair story everyone uh, and it's never a cool one um and you know they're ruthless about you know lowering the base price but actually that's what they say what if you actually look at you know back to that strategic intent model and you go you look at actually how does they how do they make money as a business they make money as a business by negotiating really low costs for their airport berths, basically. So they're always in the shittiest airports in the worst terminal and all of that stuff. Yep. And also maximize the amount of money they make per passenger by um, charging them for things that are basically standard. So, you know, imagine buying a train ticket and then (laughs) being told that to sit down, you need to pay, you know, five euros more. And yep. then to use the toilet, you need to pay another seven euros, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, and that's how they make their money. Whilst I think they're, but, you know, I have never looked at their mission, but maybe their mission is something about, you know, just enabling people to travel. I don't know. The way that they, you know, this is like, you know, there's shady ruthlessness and then there's kind of positive ruthlessness, basically. And I would say they're on the shadier side, right? Um, and yet they still have a business, a pretty successful one. So... Yeah. It's, it's like a good example of shady ruthlessness, but it's also a good example of, you know, uh, a business which, you know, if you're talking about a business that's been going for 20 odd years now is a successful one. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if you look at their, well, not this year, don't look at their numbers, but if you looked at their 2019 flight numbers, I'm sure they were bigger than ever. And I think like, it's really interesting where the reality is consume the most like normal mortals like you and me often shop on price because we're like, how much does it cost cost to move my body from Amsterdam to Stockholm? Often and often that's a price sensitive decision. I think there's a fine line between giving a consumer signals of price saving and just straight up inconveniencing them to the point where it feels like uh, it's encroaching almost on human rights in some weird ways. And it's like, there's there's a whole lot of restaurants. It reminds me of like, there's a whole lot of lunch places in Stockholm. Half of them, you have to take your tray back and stack it up. And the other half, you don't. And to me, that is a perfect little signal of the efficiencies or little compromises you're making in return for good value food. Right. So it's a last, it's, it's a really smart little reminder at the end of the meal that like, this is a slightly compromised experience. This is taking me eight seconds as I walk out the door. So I feel like a winner. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Whereas Ryanair feels like it pushes it too far the other way. And everyone's, you're right. Everyone's got a horror story from like a, 
a four-hour delay <laughs> in Spain or a or mine a was lost, in Dublin. Yeah, totally. Or a or a lost ski boot that never turned up again. It's like right, right, so. Right. I think it's like it exists on a continuum, but it's it's too far down the continuum. I would love to know the percentage of people that shit talked Ryanair to their mates and maybe in public a little bit on social media, and then just queued up Stockholm syndrome like to buy new tickets. Right, three months right. Later. So you know what people say versus what they do. They're hardcore about it. In lots of ways, they're really innovative about the things that they've done, but because they're always throwing around new ideas, like they've got designs for seats where you mainly stand up or lean. I like the idea that they're reconsidering a lot of things. One thing I don't like is the amount of dark patterns on their website. And for if you don't know what a dark pattern is, a dark pattern is essentially like a web design that tries to trick you into an upgrade that you don't really want. You sound uh, like uh, you have a thing. There's a like if you look at all the carriers between like a national carrier and Ryanair. I like something that's in the middle. So like Norwegian Air seems like a nice thing. There's a whole bunch of like. The cheap, friendly challenger, not the cheap, difficult challenger. But they are, for me, they're a great example of like the, the value dilemma, if you like. So, yeah. um, because I used to fly them to when I was in uh, uh, in London, I used to fly them to go to Stockholm. Right. Um, and you go right. You know what? It's really fucking cheap. Uh, yeah, versus, you know, SAS and whoever else. And okay, I might have to go to this airport here, but that's not too bad, is it? So you jump on the plane um, uh, with your ticket. Um, you have the argument with uh, the checkout person about your uh, about your suitcase. And then you yeah. realize when you get to Stockholm that you actually are not really in Stockholm. No, not at all. <laughs> so it costs you time and money to get actually into the city. And by, by the time you're there, you like quids down, pissed off, yeah. um, and it's not an especially good part uh, start to your uh, weekend. Um, and of course, you're already dreading the return trip. But we digress. Before we start talking, we end on like the golden rules of ruthlessness. I wanted to get your uh, your opinion about different types of ruthlessness um, in kind of like brand strategy. So for, you know, ruthlessness in different types of products and services, uh, ruthlessness in storytelling, you know, in kind of like activation. Often if you see it mainly turning up in your marketing, you're seeing it as a as a facade on an otherwise traditional business. So I don't know if I'd almost, you need to be very critical of ruthness, ruthlessness, I can't even say it, ruthlessness in comms because it's often covering big, slow ships hmm. trying to, you know, it's painting them like speedboats. So I'm not sure about that. I think that like startups who can really reconsider things from the very start can be really ruthless. I mean, these are old examples. These are examples everyone wheels out all the time, but Airbnb and Uber were ruthless from the beginning because they were really happy to be illegal in places. And they were like, <laughs> you know, they took a kind of a checkbook approach to building their business, which is easy if you've got a whole bunch of, you know, if you're using other people's money. But I think they were fairly ruthless. I think that's a fairly hardcore business decision to pitch. Yeah, there's a few different things. I think one thing that's really interesting in, in, with this subject that no one really talks about are political ads because they can be hardcore ruthless. Right. 
Right. Because really what you're doing is you're often when they're at their most ruthless, ruthless, they're, you're throwing mud, but you're throwing mud at an opponent and trying to position yourself as someone who is reliable, respectable, mature, uh, the right choice for leadership. But you're reverting to these tactics that are ruthless and dirty and unfortunately incredibly effective at times. And the thing that it it strikes me as is, this sounds strange, but it strikes me as not being ruthless. Really? Because what I think happens in politics and with politicians is that when it gets down to election time and you're putting in ads, um, essentially trying to uh, attack your opponent, but put yourself forward in, in a positive light. The attack your opponent part is just tactical. You're actually, uh, whether you think of a party or you think of an individual, because most politicians kind of like believe something, generally speaking, you stray from that in order to achieve a short-term gain. Yeah, if you like. absolutely. Yes. Um, now, if you're like an ideological party, like, um, you know, the Front National in um, uh, France, you guys have, yeah. like, what is it, the Swedish Democrats? Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah they're all, uh, we have yeah. uh, like the, well, I was going to say the BNP, but you might as well just call them the Conservative Party in the UK. Then I think you are being closer to being ruthless, actually and displaying ruthlessness because that is your mission, right? Um, it's when you have some of the kind of like center, right, center and more the, and some of the left leading parties, yeah. they're not so ruthless in their approach because yeah. they think, you know what, we've got to counteract, counteract these ruthless bastards on, on, the far, on the far right. And I think that is why, generally speaking, up until this point, those far right parties and individuals are more successful because they're actually being ruthless to their mission and their vision. When it's, I mean, I guess when it's, I guess it's a fine line between recklessness and ruthlessness in some ways. But yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think the extreme left although to a much lesser extent, does very similar things as well. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Com- completely right. Maybe to less, um, le- with less success. So I'd love to get your opinions on a few takeaway golden rules on how to be really clever in trying to get ruthless or the advantages and disadvantages of ruthlessness in strategy. Michael, what are your thoughts? Um, I think there's only one golden rule, which is having um, a really clear mission uh, and vision, being ruthless about the pursuit of them, Um, because everything else comes from that, basically. The better, like anything, the better your foundations, and particularly now, the more you know, future-facing your foundations, um, the easier it is to you know have your three hundred and sixty four-dimensional look of on the, around the world um, yeah. and how things happen, and for you to kind of like tie it back to who you are and why. I, I mean, if I had to give people any tips about being ruthless in strategy, mine is to really commit to it because in being really ruthless, you really need to make it very okay to have almost her- heretical ideas that are almost go against the church of the organization. So you, I think you need to really commit to being bold, brave, 
And even if you firewall those experiments or how, you know, those executions of ruthlessness, I think you just need to go hardcore because there's nothing worse than a half ruthless something. (laughs) (laughs) A half ruthless something. (laughs) That sounds horrible. (laughs) But you see, you see these, you see a lot of examples of a bold strategy that pulls its punches either it at the end of its thinking or through its execution or its go-to-market or its products. So I think you need to go hardcore. And I think it's easy to recover from a ruthless mistake than to wander back into people's lives in a meaningful way by being half-ruthless and boring. Right, right. Gotcha. I can see that. My name's Adam Horn, creative director of Berg Studio. You've been listening to If This Then That, a podcast about strategy. Michael, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Um, and next week, uh, we'll be talking about alchemy in strategy. Awesome. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon. See you soon. Bye, Adam. <laughs> <laughs>